0: You know, I I do think that some of the best performances that happen in the city happen on the stud stage, and I think that it is a religious experience for many. I mean, it is like going to church, going to these drag shows or DJ um, sets and dancing on that tiny sweaty dance floor.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to Stud Stories. My name is Micah Sagorni, but you can call me Vivi. Stud Stories is a queer history podcast that focuses on the Stud Bar here in San Francisco. Through stories about the Stud, we will talk about queer history in this city and the whole world. We talk to historians, DJs, drag queens, owners, workers, and patrons. We started the podcast when the COVID pandemic struck and we had to isolate here in San Francisco. The pod is a chance to stay in touch with our community while also documenting the social and cultural histories of the stud bar and the queers that love it. And maybe you've never been, maybe you've never even heard of the stud and you're saying to yourself, self, who cares about just another queer bar? To which I would say, listen up! The stud was founded in 1966, and that is three years before the Stonewall riots in New York City, which fomented the gay liberation movement and which became Gay Pride, which we celebrate every year in June. The stud survived the AIDS epidemic and hosted some legendary, legendary performers in the time that it's been around. Today's episode, we're going to talk specifically about one of those performers, Etta James. Etta James performed at the Stud Bar, and we have invited worker-owner and all-around badass Honey Mahogany to talk to us about it. Another little note here is that some of Honey's P's and S's are a little aggressive, and I'm going to just chalk that up to her having an amazing set of pipes. But it's also because we're just, you know, wrestling with the technology and making a long-distance interview podcast. So while some of the audio is... um Not ideal, we thought the conversation was so good, we just went ahead with it anyway, and I hope you enjoy it. I am here now with Honey Mahogany, who is a longtime friend of mine and also, oddly, a business partner. We would be in the same room, but COVID-19 has us in our separate spaces. And honey, on this podcast, we're going to have people introduce themselves. So how would you talk about your life or describe yourself?
0: Well, hi, i um, happy to be here and a little um, offended that it's odd that I'm in business with you. What are you trying to say?
1: Um. <laughs> I just meant we're good. I think of you so much as a friend and someone I like look up to and like, like am so palsy with and then I forget that we're also we co own a bar.
0: Yeah, I know, it's weird. Um, But I, yeah, I mean, I, how do I even describe myself? I am a drag queen. Mm -hmm. Um, I am someone who's been working as a drag queen for the last, I feel like 15 years now, which is scary to say. I feel so old. Like, I feel like I'm now at the stage where, when I first started doing drag, all the drag queens would be so over the new queens and like, I don't even know who these queens are. And that's exactly what I'm saying now is like, I don't know who half these queens are anymore. Mm-hmm. That's how long I've been doing drag. Um, I, before um, becoming an owner at The Stud, um, I was a social worker. Um, and I also founded the Comptons Transgender Cultural District. Was president of the Harvey Milk Democratic Club, and currently, actually, I'm the first uh, Black trans person to be elected to um, to be elected. Period, in the state of California and in San Francisco. Um, as I currently sit on the San Francisco Democratic County Central Committee, which no one knows what the hell that is. So tell us, um, what is that? What but is the? It is. It's the Democratic Party of San Francisco. So oh. we we do a lot of the like voter registration outreach. We We also do the endorsements for the party. Um, You know, this last uh, election, we actually did um, a lot of voter outreach across the country. We set up a call center called um, the Red to Blue Center, um, where we basically um, called all the purple or 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 even Republican congressional districts and helped convince voters to vote for Democrats. So we helped flip the um, House and, you know, we're going to hopefully finish flipping the Senate this upcoming year
1: (laughs) and what about now what's your day job these days
0: so currently thank you for asking uh currently i work as a legislative aide for supervisor matt haney in district six of san francisco which is um the tenderloin soma civic center south beach rincon hill treasure island
1: and for those of our listeners who are not familiar with uh san francisco and cultural districts can you tell us what the transgender cultural district is
0: so cultural districts are this really cool thing. They're basically um, a way to preserve the uh, integrity and history of a place. Um, to pre- it's, it's sort of like a, a mitigating factor or a tool to use against gender gentrification which is a huge problem in San Francisco Um, and it helps prevent displacement of communities especially communities of color LGBT communities who have historically been discriminated or or face discrimination um, and uh, helps them take a little bit more ownership of the space in which they've occupied and also honors the contributions that they've made to the city
1: and the the transgender cultural district what what does it represent or who does it serve
0: so the transgender cultural district uh, is the first of its kind in the world. It is um, a district that spe- that specifically honors the rich uh, history of transgender and queer folks in the t- in san francisco 's tenderloin um, Its goal is really to not just honor that history but again sort of prevent the continued displacement of trans people and people of color from the tenderloin and also provide um, Hopefully, in the future, provide economic opportunities, opportunities for entrepreneurship in the district um, and you know lots of celebration and uh, yeah, we, we just want to make sure that the tenderloin stays queer and trans for generations to come.
1: Super. Well, you have a very impressive resume, and I am so happy to have you here.
0: <laughs> I did that all in three years, just so you know.
1: That's bonkers. <laughs> So what, you started when you were 16?
0: I started when I was 16. I'm now 19. I can own a bar. I just can't drink at it. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the this podcast is about the history of the stud, but also the history of queer people and trying to line line those histories up and see where they intersect. And for each of our guests, we're picking a historical moment. And this historical moment really was the, the automatic first choice for us in making the podcast because it's such a legendary moment and you seem like the perfect guest. So we're going to speak about when Etta James performed at the stud. Amazing. So what do you know about Etta James?
0: Um, I mean, Etta James is, I think, I mean, she's an icon. She is someone who I think pushed back against a lot of boundaries. Um, She is sort of very much an archetype of these Suffering artist, mm-hmm. um, someone who faced a lot of oppression, a lot of personal issues, substance abuse. You know, really, really struggled with heroin addiction. Um, but she was also so incredibly powerful and paved the way for many, many uh, women of color who came after her. Um, and she had such a unique voice that was really genre-defying and saying in a way I think that was also not necessarily typical for her gender. So I think she was a radical. She was um, punk rock before there was punk rock and she um <laughs> uh continues to be a legend did you know that she lived in san francisco you know i did not know that
1: because you are a san Franciscan native or bay area native.
0: i am yeah yeah i was born here
1: so she was born in la and she moved here in 1950 um, but let, I'm, getting, I'm getting ahead of myself or behind myself. I'm going to start with the date. The first date she performed at the stud bar was August 16th, 1976, which, as you know, is 10 years after the stud opened. This was 22 years after the release of her first record. And she performed at the stud when it was at 1535 Folsom Street, which is its original location. By this time, James had been nominated for six Grammys, she had already toured with Little Richie, she had opened for Elvis, and she had several number one singles on the Rhythm and Blues charts, and had released 10 albums. By 1976, she was kind of on a radio downturn, like she had peaked, she had really peaked, and had a lot of popularity, like I just said, the six Grammy nominations and the tours, but she was no longer getting the radio play that she had previously, and she was also struggling with heroin addiction. And as well as the legal the legal issues associated with heroin addiction. I didn't know this, but two years before that she performed with us at the stud, mm-hmm. she had been sentenced to a drug treatment center instead of time in prison. And she was in the Tarzana Psychiatric Hospital for 17 months, which places her in the psychiatric hospital till just before she performed at the stud. Like no matter where, like if you line up those years at the beginning of 1974, no matter what, you're going to be like within a few months of her, her performance date at the stud, she comes out of here. And she says of the Tarzana Psychiatric Hospital that, that her time there changed her life. It was a significant moment for her and changed the way she functioned in the world. Though on release her drug problems continued.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, I, I, I think that for people who suffer from addiction, like going to rehab doesn't always fix the problem, right? No. I mean, that's just sort of a first step and oftentimes people can fall back into whatever um, issues, unresolved issues they may have um, and then fall back into drug use.
1: Um, and I, I think that that was clearly the case with with Etta James. So uh, why do you think she performed at the Stud, honey? Like, why the Stud? I mean, I think that this was like
0: in the late or mid-70s, right? Or the,
1: Yeah, 76. Yeah, 76.
0: I mean, I think that, you know, queer people were having a moment in the late 70s. Like it was before the AIDS crisis decimated the queer community. Um, It was right around the era of like uh, um, disco and I think, you know, Studio 54. And so I think that queer people were being acknowledged um, again, right? Because I think this was also true in like the 1920s. But -hmm. again, we're sort of being acknowledged as culture creators and cultural leaders. Um, and so I think for her, it was a way of, um, I think being, hanging out with the cool kids and also doing it in a way that was both subverse and also, um, really, really, uh, like pertinent to the moment, right. Um, or in the Mm -hmm. moment. Um, I also think that maybe she didn't have the clout at that time to be playing the big type of clubs that she wanted to play. And so for mm-hmm. her, this was a way for her to continue to work and make money and, um, and also express herself.
1: So all of those things sound like they're probably pretty accurate. We can't, I don't know. <laughs> right. Like all of you true? answers. I know. I know everything that our researchers has given us, which is nothing, but, <laughs> which is enough, which was more than Wikipedia. So actually, honey, you are right. It was a low point. Like she was having decreased radio play after years of pretty high radio play. And she had just come out of 17 months in rehab. And it was just after this period that she headlined at the Montreux Jazz Festival and like started up again. Mm-hmm. Like she had a she had a burst forth. She, she's done this a few times in her career where she kind of goes away and then comes back. So by the 1970s though, the Stud had gathered a reputation for performances of all kind, and by 1976 it was to host to many pop-up, impromptu and last-minute performances, some were listed in the Gay Rags and some you just had to hear about by word of mouth. So we have Etta James, we also have Sylvester of Sylvester <laughs> Fame, but also the Cockettes. We also have Patrick Cowley and Candida Royale with the White Trash Boom. Ew, Candida. Those are just a few. There Candida Royale. That is such Royale. a disgusting name. It's a. I believe it's not just the name of a disease. I think it's a person's name. Is it?
0: Is it named after? Was, yes. the, was no. So Candida is no. like thrush, right? Or like it's like a fungus. It's,
1: it's like a sugary yeah, yeast, a yeast problem. But I know I've known people named Candida before. I've never known what the <laughs> disease. Was. So maybe it was named after them. Are you? I, <laughs>
0: Like, wait, was it named after, so was this, like, you know how, like, you know, um, Parkinson's was named after, like, someone, the person who discovered
1: it was named Parkinson, right, or something, I assume. Really? I assume.
0: You know that, or a patient.
1: Well, it's not like a... Whatever you're saying sounds good to me. Let's just hope that Candida <laughs> the disease was named after Candida somebody. Yeah.
0: I'm sure there are people out there who think Honey is disgusting and that my name is disgusting. So it's fine.
1: True. you're I'm disgusting. disgusting. So can, <laughs> it was Candida Royale. There's a ton of live performers and weird experimental stuff happening at the stud. Patrick Cowley, who I just mentioned, as you might know, is, is the creator of high energy and deep dark synth mm-hmm. sounds in gay porn music in the 70s. And he's been... Kind of all over SF, Nightlife, actually for quite some time now with Honey Sound yes. System and Dark Entries Records doing some releases of his. So James, Edda James, moved wait, to the Fillmore. Wait, wait, did Patrick
0: Cowley also work with Sylvester?
1: Yes, he did. Patrick Cowley also worked yeah. with Sylvester.
0: That makes sense. So, porn stars and drag queens all together all the time.
1: Always. Um, the and also, like, lives. later, let's talk about, like, porn stars. Aren't they just porn actors? So, wow. Edda James the moved shade. to the... shade. It's... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think all drag queens should be called drag queens. I think we are drag performers <laughs> and that some Can of be us queens. are queens. Fair. Yes. <laughs> Etta James moved to the Fillmore in San Francisco in 1950 and considered the city her home. And in her biography she says, and this kind of gets to what you were saying earlier about gay people being like cool. I mean, it was after Stonewall and it was before the AIDS epidemic. So it was this really golden age of queer celebration, right? And she says, San Francisco was my only salvation. My strongest fans are there. And many of them are gay men and lesbians. I'm not sure how that happened. I like to think they're responding to my honest emotions. They know what bigotry is about. They understand hard times and heartache. They like it when someone lays it on the line. So that kind of gets at what you're saying, how you earlier described Ada James as being radical and pre-punk and um, not... Uh, gender appropriate in some ways, and that she's raw and and like laying it on the line. And that is what queer people needed right after our gay rights were kind of on the rise, right after...
0: Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that that's really true because it's like, I think that queer people, because we live, queer and trans people, because we live outside of, I think societal expectations in many ways we kind of have a unique perspective and are able to see through the bullshit of society and also sort of through the artifice that is involved in maintaining those Mm -hmm. illusions right um and so when it's done ironically i think we really celebrate the illusion which is why i think drag is such a huge thing for queer people um but i think we can i think that also makes us uniquely um uniquely good critics and being able to really identify and connect with really genuine emotional performances and artists. I agree.
1: I agree. Um, That was really well put. (laughs) I have nothing to say. Thanks. (laughs) So there's just a little more about James before we depart from her moment at the stud. She actually performed semi-annually at the stud and she usually performed on Valentine's day between 1976 and 1984, but she also performed, several times throughout the year. And often these were not announced. So she started in 76, goes up through 1984. And most of the remembrances of her performances include some of what you and I, or many people might consider a very Soma aesthetic, which is that she was filthy and dirty and raunchy. Oh. Yeah. So the, um, What does that mean? I'll tell you right now. There is an article written by Mark Freeman for the BAR in which he quotes activist Silvana Nova who says imagine seeing a legend and she was even then in such an intimate setting. The stage was smaller than a postage stamp. She was having a great time and seemed to be in her element. The voice it was as raw and as vibrant as any of her recordings. But live, it was so much more. She was for real. She was absolutely filthy. She went down on the mic. She made all kinds of lewd comments. And my favorite thing, she would turn around, hang her very ample derriere over the edge of the stage and kind of wave it in front of the audience. It was both a taunt and a come on. The audience, of course, went wild. So that was just one of the descriptions we found about her performance being dirty. There were several eyewitnesses who said it was dirty. Another rumor, which comes from like the source, from a primary source, is that she, on the night of her premiere at The Stud, this a patron of The Stud, who we've talked to, tried to get into one of the stalls in the bathroom, but she couldn't because Etta James was passed out in there because of heroin. Or she was nodding off in there because of heroin. And then moments later, she's, she snapped up and went on stage and performed. Which, at first, I didn't know about Etta James's heroin use and so I thought it really? was really
0: how did you not know that
1: I just I knew her music as opposed to her life you know I just didn't mm. I, I just didn't know like I always knew who Etta James was but so I was like oh maybe we shouldn't talk about that but as it turns out it was did you ever watch the movie Cadillac records no but that's about chess records right
0: it's also well so it, it's actually about it heavily features um Etta James
1: isn't Beyonce in that
0: Yes, that's why I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was. I mean, there were there were other good actors. I mean, okay, not that Beyonce is a great actor because besides Dreamgirls, I generally haven't liked anything that she's been. Wow. But right, huh? I mean, controversial. Uh, uh, let's be let's be honest. Let's be honest. Beyonce is an amazing performer. Mm-hmm. She's probably the greatest performer of our generation. Agree. Um. I think that she was still working on her acting and well, I actually think that like any other actor there are, well, there are certain actors who can play any role like Meryl Streep who can do anything, Mm -hmm. but there are other actors like, Oh my gosh! I was just watching someone the other day. Um, oh, Reese Witherspoon, who always plays the exact same character. Mm-hmm. She always plays the really high-strung know-it-all with like that is kind of likable, but also like you really hate. Yes, because they remind you of like a mean girl or like someone who you made fun of in school, something like that. I feel like Beyonce like Beyonce, doesn't have the, the the acting range yet. She may one day to do like really complex roles, but like I think that for she was basically playing herself as Dina to a certain extent. And so that was, I think that she did great at that. I actually, though, will say that in Cadillac Records, I think she did do a very good job of playing Edda James, who I think was I think that was actually it really showed her growth as an artist. Not that we're here to talk about Beyonce, but I do think that it showed her growth as an actor <laughs> in portrait. Well, first of all, first of all, she gains like 30 pounds in order to play that role.
1: Does she perform at this time? Beyonce? In the movie?
0: I don't think so. I, you know, I meant to watch, re watch Cadillac Records um, in preparation for this, and then I, I didn't. I was, I will too busy. Say
1: tell you that historically, if she did, it would be inaccurate because Chess Records was this label that I believe it was Chess Records that, that Etta James was on for a very long time and made many albums with, and then it folded. I believe the owner died, or there was yes, something. Yes. Yeah. He died
0: in the movie. Yeah. So and so was...
1: this was this her. Etta James performing at uh, the stud was after Beyonce played her in a movie. It was like it. later yeah. in the timeline. It, it was later in her life. Yeah.
0: So yeah, it didn't, it didn't. Yeah, totally. That makes total sense. It, and it the movie ended with the, uh, the, 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 the owner of the label, label dying in his car. Mm, yes. In front of his And it was called Cadillac records right. in the movie, but I guess it was called it's chess just records, records in them. real life.
1: So I wanted to share with you just a few more things about 1976, just to like get a lay of the land, which is, This is so weird.
0: Wait, but we didn't even talk about like,
1: sorry, I'm eating now. Oh my God. I can't believe you're just eating into our podcast.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm eating. So, I mean, we didn't even talk about her ass. Like, I mean, like, you know, or how filthy she is. Are we going to talk about that later?
1: Yeah. We could talk about that right now. Okay.
0: I mean, I think, you know, again, like she was such a visceral performer and you could tell that. Like, that came out in her music. And so the fact that she was also equally visceral in person um, isn't surprising to me. And I think that is probably also why, again, like, she was so loved by the queer community because um, queer performers and queer performances almost, like, need that, need that sort of element of rawness and realness. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me. And I also, I mean, you know, who doesn't la- love a big... Ass. <laughs> who,
1: doesn't who doesn't love, love a big, a big ass? ass well
0: except for like i mean i don't know white women who
1: read fashion magazines maybe sure which was probably not the white women in the stud at right part. so in this history that i shared with you about etta james it stood out that several people said that she was filthy on stage which i called a soma aesthetic because in the gay neighborhoods of san francisco currently we have the castro which is a little more gay stream it's a little more Disneyland gay. It's a little more Cologne. You know what I mean. Cologne, and then you have like
0: the cologne. country or
1: like the parfum. Cologne is a city in Germany, and also <laughs> I mean, the city. it's it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a perfume for, um, parfum for masculine of center people. And I don't know if you've had the experience of walking down the street, people wear outside, yes more Cologne, and you walk past a crowd of people, and it is a cloud. Of the most synthetic smelling scents there is. So that happens in the Castro. Meanwhile, in the Soma, um, people smell like cigarettes, body odor, and uh, boots. Yeah, hopefully the appropriate part of the body. Oh, girl.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Like, hopefully they're smelling like their pits and not some other part. What was that? Hopefully it's like their pits and not like some other part of their body.
1: I see. What part would you really dislike to smell just by walking by someone?
0: There are many. I mean, it could be feet.
1: Oh. It could be, you know. But I mean, in Soma, ass. you could meet. Be...
0: But like not clean ass, like
1: nasty, dirty but ass. All... That would be Some bad. Some people in Soma would be like stoked on that.
0: No, don't say it. I have judged. So I have been a judge at the, um, uh, God, what was it? It was like stank. the smelly armpit contest. Stank. Yeah, it stank. That was interesting. I'm not, no- I'm not normally like a. Like a stink loving queen, but I'm like, you know, like a little bit of armpit odor, a little bit is fine. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I maybe because I am. a I consider myself more of a Soma queen than a castor queen
1: (laughs) for sure. It's funny the way we talk about this, too, as if it's like very distinctly different. And the truth is, it is it is. It feels that way because I also bartend at the stud and there are nights where there's a crowd who's never been there before, who is probably come from the cast. Like, where do you hang out if you've never been to the stud? You don't hang out in Soma. Right. Because I'm a right. small in that way. But I want to talk to you about nastiness on stage. What is it about getting filthy on stage? Well, I mean,
0: I think there's definitely a shock factor there. But I think, you know, going back to my earlier point, there's like an authenticity to mm-hmm. it, right? I mean, I think when people are nasty on stage and, you know, I think when I think about nasty performers, you know, I think about people like... Ray light or suppository spelling. I mean, there's so many, really. Um, but like it is a, a lot of the time, a lot of the time, it is a very um, slapstick, but also um, lowbrow sort of like, I'm going to show, I'm going to talk out of my asshole literally on stage, or I'm going to shit into a cup and then eat it, or whatever, oh, you know, like all of these things have happened. <laughs> In performances, not all of them at the stud. Um, I think that the shock value of those performances are really entertaining sometimes. And I think that people come to the stud for a ver- because they know they never know what they're going to get they don't know if they're going to get like some gorgeous glamorous queen singing live and looking stunning on stage you. they don't know if <laughs> they don't know if they're going to get some you know slightly socially awkward queen dressed up as a clown on Me. stage
1: <laughs>
0: they don't know if they're going to get um some queen who is naked except for a jock strap, lip syncing out of her asshole on stage. Suppository spelling. Suppository mm-hmm. spelling. Um, so, you know, like, and I, I think that that's what makes the stud so attractive is that we do have this incredible variety of performers and it keeps things interesting and, you know, um, makes sure that there's something for everybody and it's, you know, very dynamic. I, I And I think that's what makes a good performance and I think that Etta James knew that and I think that, you know, she is a very... or or was a very curvy woman who had a lot of stage presence and power and sass. And so she used like every bit of, you know, she used everything that she had in her performances, right? Um, It was her living and she enjoyed it. And so of course she was going to get nasty and dirty on stage because she enjoyed it and she knew that the audience enjoyed it too. I would say that
1: she, I would guess that she was reading The Room. She was, reading you know, because she was probably very. When good When she that. performed open for Elvis, I doubt she um, hung her ass off the stage, or oh, she probably do you think did. So?
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, Elvis's whole thing was like thrusting into the air. Like people used to, like people used to not let their children, especially their teenage daughters, go to Elvis concerts because he kept like wiggling his hips in a very inappropriate he way, air. in a way that he stole <laughs> from a black man.
1: <laughs> uh, oh Elvis, we could have a whole. Yeah, I'm sure there's a podcast a here a thousand about Elvis. So uh, there's also a few like there's also the the diva worship aspect, right? Like Etta James, could we call her a diva? Like I, I'll consider you the diva expert in this part of the conversation. Like what makes a diva, and is Etta James a diva enough to be like? Was that a read? No, it was a self read. <laughs> girl i wouldn't know a diva if she walked all over me
0: everything you say vivi is like has a double entendre <laughs> it's
1: so shady how is that shady i said you're the diva expert okay so <laughs> what, what kind of expert would you prefer to be for the sake of this conversation
0: i mean you know i i, I don't know i i'm maybe the black expert because i'm the only black person sure, in this conversation.
1: i'm certainly not the, <laughs> the diva the diva the black diva expert that's you
0: Okay, sure. Um, What makes her a diva? Is that the question? Well, do you think think she's a diva? I mean, obviously. I mean, okay, so this all all roads lead back to Beyonce. Um, She is clearly a diva. um, And it's very much not just the fact that she is legendary and an amazing singer and deserves all those accolades, but also I think had a very, very strong sense of self and and even 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 though i think some of that was perhaps also an illusion right because she was obviously suffering and or at least a defense mechanism and she was obviously suffering and there was a lot of pain going on there and probably self-hatred but i think there was also a tremendous amount of sort of like this is my stage and i am at a James and, you know, I am powerful and I should be respected and sort of like this demanding presence, which I think is what a diva is, right? Is a diva com- demands and commands a stage. And um, when Beyonce, you know, performed as her in Cadillac records, I think that she was very flattered that, the, that, Beyonce, who is, you know, gorgeous and beautiful and super talented played her in a movie. But then when Beyonce sang at last, at the presidential inauguration back in 2009, I think, yeah, 2009, um, she read her to filth. She was like, I think she said, um, they, they let that bitch sing my song, <laughs> was were her exact words. She said it in a performance. I mean, there's a video of it on YouTube. She's just like, can you believe that bitch? They let that bitch sing my song. Like she like read Beyonce to filth because she was so. Ups- I mean, and I get it because it's like also it's like yeah that was Etta's song. Did you at least consider making it a a, a medley and that Eda so Eda could be a part of it? <laughs> um, but yeah, so mm-hmm. she's in all ways a diva from the um, powerful commanding performances to the um, not so subtle shade that she throws on stage while she's being
1: recorded. You keep bringing up Beyonce, which is great I love Beyonce but there is a history of particularly of white white faggot culture borrowing from and or stealing uh language dance song from um black femme people and it, it, like I don't I don't think it's always like it's not always stealing it's not always appropriation it's not always Uh, the negative right it could also be the positive side like the appreciation the adoration (laughs) the payment right but and so it is interesting to me that like even back then in 1976 just a few years after like not even 10 years after the the gay rights movement like hit a like really exploded but like uh, there's this diva this legend on stage at what was uh originally a queer faggot bar and by this time was not it was very mixed it was very mixed but like I I I think about that I can't help but think about that because I see it now right I see it now in the drag clubs where um there's constant reference to and adoration of like black divas you know
0: yes I do know
1: (laughs) do you remember wait do you remember you and I were watching a drag show and I'm not going to say who it was or why they were doing what they were doing, but they were doing blackface. Oh, yes. I, I and, know what you're talking about. Yes. And you and I were sitting to, not. We were like leaning. We were in the back of the room. This was not a very full room, but we were in the back of the room. And I remember leaning over to you just in, as your friend being like, like, are you okay? Like, can, <laughs> just check, a check-in. And I remember you leaned over to me. Do you remember what you said? Yes. You,
0: I, I think you said, say? oh, my God, I can't believe she's doing this. Um are like, are you okay are, are you upset? And and I said I think I said I'm something like, um well, I wouldn't mind it if it was good. <laughs> I think that's what I said. You, something like you that. Said
1: something, I remember you saying, um, I just wish it was better. Oh yeah. <laughs> something <laughs> And the fact that, like, you and I saw blackface in the years that we've been alive and grown-ups is, like, pretty bonkers. But, like, drag has been irreverent. But, like, I remember that moment, particularly with you and being really, like, struck by the complexity of it, Well,
0: yeah, I mean, well, first of all, the person who was on stage was a drag sister of mine. And I knew, I mean, like... If she were to do that, it was also, I think, a time in which people were feeling very... They're, like, post-racial oats. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of that kind of shit happening. And I think we were sort of, like... Maybe I was sort of, like, trained to, like, give people the benefit of the doubt in that scene as a black person in a predominantly white scene. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially for people that I was close to. Um, And I do think that... So... And also, to be clear, like, she was impersonating me, right? Or or impersonating Ronnie or something. Mm -hmm. It was like an impersonation show. So there was that layer of it as well, right? So it wasn't like she was just doing a blackface number for the sake of doing blackface. She was actually impersonating, like it was an impersonation night and she was impersonating a black performer who was her friend. That being said, I don't think that shit would go down in like 2020. Um, And with, I mean, it just wouldn't happen. Like if people did that, I think they would probably get like literally ripped off the stage. But, you know, it's interesting because I remember Feeling that way, I think also as someone who grew up in San Francisco and I think didn't experience, definitely experienced racism, but not to the extent that someone like Etta James would have experienced racism and being shocked at the way in which certain people did react to blackface, particularly like I did a number. I did "Strange Fruit" and I did it in like, com- like completely black makeup. It wasn't even blackface. It was just like blackness. And I remember like there was some white queen who was just like shocked and like making a fuss and just like I can't believe she's doing blackface. Was it with? Was I with you? Oh no! Was it with, I was there? You were there. I was definitely there. And like she was just like not having it and it was either you or Spaz who was like um she's black <laughs> and they just didn't even care like they didn't get that like they didn't think it was okay for whatever reason so i mean all that to say that i think that the the, the context of the situation is important um mm-hmm. and uh and also the, i think the times um but you know going back to your original point about um the worship of sort of like black Women in particular, black bodies in general, and also, I mean, I think women specifically by gay men, um, is very much a part of the overarching gay culture and queer culture. Women have been oppressed for so long, and for so like such a long part of human history, and yet have also been like been put on a pedestal, um, in a way, uh, you know, and not necessarily in a good way, sort of like for. Um, male gaze, being a disempowered person, all of a sudden having power and being the center of attention and being able to command a room as a disenfranchised class um, is something that speaks to queer people because they are so deeply disenfranchised, right? And so they can really, even if they're not black and they're not women, they can deeply identify with the experience of being oppressed um, and also maybe even hope that they can exploit their own prisons um to basically build an empire on top of and 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 sort of rise above and make themselves powerful so i think that's sort of like the obsession that gay men specifically have with black people and black women
1: and women in general so you're just the way you said that they're going to exploit their own prisons to make an empire upon other people (laughs) that's what you said right
0: not other people. Well, to make to so yes, so they're going to exploit the situations that they are in to build an empire on top of the prisons um, within which society has put them. I see. Um, right. So like they are, yeah. So basically, like if you're a woman and you are oppressed, you 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 know legally don't have very many as many rights as your husband you can't vote you can't you know have control over your own body all these different things own property you know at some point in history um but like if you're really really beautiful and like um you know maybe an amazing artist you can be celebrated and that celebration you know if you if you work it right can really give you a lot of power so that you can use like powerful people or men or money or whatever it is to do what you want and have your own agency, even within a system that is meant to rob you of that agency. Mm. Um, I think, and and I think that is the story that gay men find so, again, so compelling because I think that they're trying to figure out ways in which to do that for themselves. Um, You know, it's like the story of like Marilyn Monroe, like Marilyn Monroe, like sold the story of being this dumb blonde, but really was using her, sex appeal and her, that story to like become one of the most powerful women in the world and <laughs> was able to really change the world in a lot of ways. I mean, even when it came to integration, like at, um, not at a James, but Ella Fitzgerald really like Marilyn Monroe helped to launch the career of Ella Fitzgerald um, because she loved hearing her. I mean, she thought she was so incredibly talented and um, Ella Fitzgerald was like not I mean, she was black. She had to always go in through the kitchen. She wasn't allowed to, you know, play in certain clubs or certain clubs weren't booking her because she was black. And um, Marilyn Monroe, I think, in somewhere in Hollywood, was basically, you know, told told to the bar like, if you hire Ella Fitzgerald to play. I will be there every night that she performs and I'll sit in the front row. And so they booked her and Marilyn came and sat in the front row and hordes and hordes of people came to see Marilyn, but they stayed for Ella. And that really helped to build her career. So, so like she, so we can build power. Like people, there are people who know how to take coal and make a diamond out of it. You know, like they, they know how to sort of make incredible things out of nothing and rise above their circumstances and the oppression that they may face and sort of conquer the world and really create change that is not just, I think, empowering for them, but also empowering for the world and the larger society. And so I think, again, that's what I think people in general, but specifically oppressed people like queer people and trans people really, really, um, I think, recognize in some of these performers. And that's why I think that they're so important and such integral parts of our culture. I should write a fucking wow, book.
1: You. Have you not yet?
0: <laughs> don't, don't steal my ideas and write a book, Micah.
1: Awesome. <laughs> I will not steal your ideas.
0: You're like, they're shit ideas.
1: Honey, yeah. <laughs> no, sh- i I'm not going to write about imagine. people
0: building their prisons on top of or their, their, their empires on top yeah. of prisons.
1: <laughs> yeah. like ima- No, but imagine me trying to get away saying oh. what you just said in the same way. People would be like, shut Shut up, you up. white man yeah <laughs> Excuse me, I'm a drag queen. I wanted to um ask you like so we were speaking about Edda James, you're talking about power, and like some of the things that you just said really resonate with her earlier biography, which is before she moved in nineteen fifty and she was quite young at that time, she had already been abused and abandoned, and her life was not great, right, and her life spans several different important decades for civil rights and also queer rights and women's liberation like her whole like she died quite like you know she moved here in 1950 and then she's performing in 1976 and in between those times just those times alone those 26 years so much had happened for human rights as a whole and um I don't know I just think it's 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 interesting that 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 that, by the time she came to the stud, all of this had already happened in her lifetime, like the changes and the shifts in power were beginning while she was growing up,
0: yeah, I mean, it was definitely uh, a time, especially I think for our country, where um things were really volatile, and um things were changing very quickly for you know when it whether it be um the women 's rights movement um the civil rights movement, the queer um, the gay liberation movement, there was a lot going on. Like, people were trying to get free and like break their chains. Um, and I think that Etta James was caught in the middle of a lot of that. I mean, from what I remember from Cadillac Records, um, she, because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't read her biography or anything, I'm assuming everything in Cadillac Records was true, except yeah. for the name of the record company. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean she was raised by a single mother and didn't know who her father was, um even though there were rumors that he was like this really rich white maybe gangster mm. who owns a club mm-hmm. um, yeah so she she and and also like so she was half white right so she was she was clearly light skinned she was half white so I think that she played out a lot of those tropes that we, you know, that sort of carry forward in terms of like what it, what, what life experience is like for mixed race people, especially um, during that time where they feel like they don't really have a place, right? They feel like they maybe aren't treated very well by the black community because hmm. of a variety of reasons. They're not accepted in the white community either, and so they struggle sort of to like really find their 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 people or their community or their home um and then on top of that you know there is that like well but also like maybe you are more palatable to the white audience because you are light skinned and you know your hair straightens out really nice and you know blonde hair looks good on you or whatever you know like all those things um so I, I, you know i think that again there was a lot of layers to yeah. this onion of Etta James that contributed to both her success, but also to her drug addiction and, um, you know, her eventual death.
1: I, I like, can't help but think about, like, seeing you sing at this stud.
0: Oh, my God. So another Etta James connection that has nothing to do with Beyonce. Um, I actually sang at... Um, Mark and David's wedding. um, And I sang at last, actually. Um, It was at... Oh, my gosh. What is that space that is sort of like... Were you there? You were there, weren't you? No. Okay. Well, in in any case, I sang it at their wedding. um, And now they're a co-owner of the bar with us and we're doing our first stud podcast about Etta James. So I thought it was relevant.
1: Yeah. Do you... like? I don't know. There's this, like, there is this, currently, I feel like, where it's waning, but there's been this kind of, like, queer obsession with, like, the 70s gay stuff. Like, I feel like 70s gay leather culture is really, has been kind of highlighted recently in San Francisco Nightlife. And it does seem like a really, like, high point, especially before the AIDS epidemic. And, like, I think it was maybe... Valorized in different ways before we had prep, right? As being this time before AIDS, before HIV, before the glory equal death. The glory days, right? And so to imagine, Etta, I just my mind's blown that like you could be like who would be who's like the the present day equivalent of Etta James, like someone who's like radio play is kind of coming down, but is like one of the most powerful singers, you know, like to be performing on a stage that has been described as four feet by four feet. And and also the dressing room was allegedly across the street at Hamburger Mary's. So Hamburger Mary's was across the street from the old stud. You'd get dressed there. You'd run across the street and perform at the stud because there was no dressing room there. So, like, go on.
0: <laughs> I just hope that they had a better sound system than we do now because live performances are rough at the stud right now. <laughs> Wow, you're talking smack around your own I bar. I know, but it's true. No, actually, it's gotten a lot better. But there was definitely a time when the stud had a really horrible <laughs> sound system for live singers. Great for dance parties yeah. and and lip sinkers, but
1: yeah. I mean, yeah, the wise live singers will bring in their own sound people and everything. Yes. So I, um, I don't know. Like it just to hear the details of this that like. She was like, even like that, she was doing like that, she was doing drugs. I don't know if this is like off base or off the topic, but just like that, she's doing drugs at the bar that we do drugs at. Like, you know what I mean? I not i sitting drugs. around, doing, <laughs> I don't do drugs either, but there, I don't, I don't. But oh, yeah, you like, don't, you be, don't like, do like, drugs either. <laughs> I don't do drugs. <laughs> I don't even drink alcohol anymore. And I'm not saying that anyone does drugs at our bar because that would be illegal and we do not support illegal activity. However, back
0: in the day, they did that. What? Sorry. Back in the day, they totally did. Like there were all those stories of, you know, people taking out like trays filled with c- cocaine after the bar closed and the after party happening at this. St- I mean, this was right back in the 70s, different ownership. Yeah. Many of those owners are dead or retired something, so they can't be prosecuted. Um But yeah. So, I mean, it was a different time. I mean, the seventies in general, I think were sort of a heyday for cocaine and heroin too, um, in a way that is both similar and different to what's happening now.
1: Mm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Is there anything else you want to say about anything about Etta James for yourself? That Like I, you were a natural, this is kind of like behind the scenes, but you were like a natural choice for this because what is, I don't know your gender identity right now. What is my
0: gender identity right now? I mean, I identify, yeah. I
1: don't know my gender identity right now either. I mean. Work, that's fine. <laughs> um, I I was about to say, like, you came to mind because you're a black woman who sings and lives in Syracuse. I know. Like, that's I don't literally... really identify
0: as a woman. I mean, I think people, yeah. people go there because when I say I'm trans, they're like, oh, so black, she's a black trans woman. And, I'm, and, and sometimes I will correct them. And sometimes I'm just like, it's not, I don't care that much. And I'd rather just not have to have that awkward moment where I'm like, actually I'm not a woman and let me explain my gender to you in all of its confusing glory. But I identify as a trans femme. Um, Mm. You know, I'm not like on HRT or, you know, doing anything to like physically transition really right now. Um, Doesn't mean I won't someday, but you know, I feel very comfortable in my non-binary
1: gender. So is there anything about Etta James or the story that makes that like, Has any resonance for you with the stud today?
0: I mean, I think that the stud is still very much that sort of unique mixture of underground and also very current. Um, It's like a place where people who are not necessarily a part of the popular crowd go, but it's also a place that is recognized as being a culture creator. And, you know, I, I do think that some of the best performances that happen in the city happen on the stud stage. And I think that it is a religious experience for many. I mean, it is like going to church, going to these drag shows or DJ um, sets and dancing on the, that tiny sweaty dance floor. Like these are very visceral, authentic uh, experiences that are very queer still and very um much a part of the fabric of i think san francisco um so in many ways i i I do think that the stud is the same i think that we i'm i'm proud of the fact that i think that we have really successfully carried forward um the torch and uh you know hopefully that part of it never changes
1: That was Honey Mahogany talking with us about Etta James and the stud, and apparently Stanky Soma Booty. Thank you all for listening to Stud Stories. If you like the episode and want to make sure you hear all the future episodes, please subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're over there at iTunes, why don't you just rank us? I see all you people talking about everything all the time and what you think and having big opinions. Put them down in writing! It helps other people to find us with a higher ranking and more comments will come across other people's feeds and then The Stud stories will spread. And if you really want to support The Stud, please subscribe to our Patreon account. To find us at Patreon, go to patreon.com backslash stud. That's patreon.com backslash stud. Patreon subscribers get early releases of our episodes, you also get access to behind-the-scenes footage from our videos and our Twitch channel as well as outtakes from the podcast. To get your very own stud sweatshirt or other amazing merch, just go to studsf.com. In fact, go to studsf.com if you want any studly updates. Things are always changing for us, we got exciting things on the horizon. Also check us out on Instagram at studsf, become a follower, say hello, do what you can. Since we can't party with you in person right now, we want you to join us every Saturday at 6.30 p.m. Pacific time for our weekly virtual drag show called Drag Alive, which you can find at twitch.tv dragalive. That is twitch.tv dragalive. Stud Stories is produced and edited by Tara Haywood. Ben McGrath is our production manager. Music is by Paige Turner. Research for this episode was by Chloe Miller. Founder of Stud Pin Archives. And I am your host, Vivian Forevermore, or Micah Sigourney. Hopefully, we'll see you on the dance floor, and if not, we'll just be inside your ears. To you get your very own stud sweatshirt, wow!